Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the images and the imagery in Revelation is, is striking, to say the least. And at times, trying to, to visualize what's being referred to and what's being talked about is not only difficult, but it can be quite distressing. So take, for example, if you've got a copy of Scripture in front of you, take that last verse, for example. That, that's a lot of blood. So it rises as high as a horse's bridle. So that's about four feet deep depending on how many hands the horse actually is. And it covers a distance of 180 miles. That's what that is referring to, just short of 300 kilometers. That's Belfast to Kilkenny. That is a pretty shocking picture to imagine and visualize. And then there's the reason for this bloodbath. Because according to verse 19, the reason is God's wrath. And so how do you get your head around all of this? It's tough. And I know some of you are finding this really tough. But the fact that John somehow saw all of this is staggering, fascinating. Now, hopefully, we will get the verses 19 to 20 later. But as the chapter begins, we're back to asking the question, not what happens next, but what did John, what? See next. If you're visiting and you think we've lost it, stick with us. Have a look with me at verse 1, because here's how it starts. Then I looked. Jump down to verse 6. Then I saw. Jump down to verse 14. I looked and there before me. The question is, what did John see each time on each occasion according to this chapter? And the answer is, John sees three things. Three things in general, but then as he looks at each, he discovers more. And this morning, we're going to attempt to consider all three things in turn. Please, at this moment in time, just take a deep breath and we're just going to go for this, because we've got to get through 20 verses, okay? And if you do lose the will, leave at any moment. It's fine, okay? So first off, we are going to see in verses 1 to 5, we are going to see that John sees Jesus and the people of God. In verses 6 to 13, he sees three angels. In verses 14 to 20, he catches a glimpse of two harvests. Now, last week, what did John see? Last week, John saw two beasts. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Down to verse 11, And I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. Those two beasts were and are in league with the devil, with Satan, with the dragon. And their purpose is a threesome. Their purpose is to wage war against the people of God. This unholy trinity is intent on coming after you. Intent of coming after disciples of Jesus Christ. They've been doing that since Jesus returned to heaven. They will do that until Jesus returns again. Now, lots of people are already on board with them. As we read last week, all inhabitants of the earth worship the beast. Now, that may offend some. I recognize that. 
But that's what God's word says. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast except those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, what it said. And these not God worshipers, they have been marked in some way. Their thinking, their belief, and their behavior are godless. But as this fake trinity tries to keep these non-believers distracted or blinded, as God's word teaches us, they're also targeting those whose names are written in heaven. They're coming after Christians. They wage war against the people of God. That's what we discovered in chapter 12. We're in a fight, which by the way, is not a new revelation, small r, in Revelation, capital R. Earlier in the New Testament, we're explicitly told that we as Christians are in our battle, and our battle is not against flesh and blood. So this idea of existing and living out our faith in a war zone should not come as a surprise to us in Revelation. We know this already. And John sees it. And in this letter, he informs believers in the first century in these seven local churches about this reality. And what he's really saying is, listen, guys, things are not as they seem. Things are not only as they seem. There is way more going on, and you need to be aware of it. You need to be aware you're in a fight so that you're prepared for it and so that you can deal with it. But then as you get into chapter 14, you discover having John, having seen this unholy trinity that's waging war against the people of God, John in chapter 14 then sees the opposition, if you like. He sees Jesus and the people of God. John is given a vision of redeemed humanity. Those who've been saved by Jesus, those who now belong to God, those who don't worship the beast, but those who worship God. And although the language and the imagery is unusual, which is par for the course in terms of this type of literature, what we discover, what we're going to learn in verses 1 to 5 together is the true or the identity of true disciples of Jesus Christ. That is what verses 1 to 5 teach us. The identity of true disciples of Jesus Christ. We're going to see what characterizes them. So let's together walk our way through these these three things John sees. So verse 1. If you have a copy in front of you, it's going to be really helpful as we do this. So in verse 1, it says, he sees the lamb. We know that the lamb is Jesus. But look where Jesus is standing as he looks. He's standing on Mount Zion. Now, remember what we've been saying all along. That in order to get a handle on Revelation, you need to know the Old Testament. And so whenever the first readers of this letter read about where Jesus is standing, they would have immediately gone in their minds to Psalm Two, where we read this. As for me, that's God, I have installed my king, capital K, reference to Jesus. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mount. Now, this psalm also talks about the nations being in uproar and rulers doing their own thing. And so in John's vision of Jesus standing in this particular place and location, this is a powerful way of saying and communicating. Listen, Jesus is now king over all the nations. He is the victorious one. And therefore, in this battle you're in, in this fight you're involved in, do not fear you're on the winning side. Jesus is standing and he is king over all the nations. Now then we discover who is standing with Jesus. And what it says is there are 100 
and 44,000. Now that's a number, or rather that's a symbol that we have come across before. So those of you who've been following this series, hopefully you'll remember that in Revelation chapter 7, it talked about the sailing of the 144,000. But you may remember that John heard that number, and then when he looked, what did he see? He saw a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, tribe, or language. And so who are these 144,000 that we said in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 14? They represent all of God's people. It's all of God's people, including the first readers of this letter, including all subsequent readers of this letter, including us today. And we are now, like them, standing with Jesus, standing in the presence of Jesus. That's where we find ourselves this morning. And you'll notice that the people of God are marked but they're marked very differently from the ones in chapter 13. The people of God are marked with the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father on their foreheads. So what's that about? Well, it's just a symbol of ownership. It's just saying this is who you belong to. This is who you, whose you are. And you look at verses 3 and 5 where John keeps looking, and he sees certain other realities and characteristics regarding the people of God. So he sees them marked with this name. He sees them standing with Jesus. Then end of verse 3, end of verse 4, you read that these people have been redeemed. Redeemed from the earth, redeemed from mankind. What does redeem mean? It means to purchase by payment of a price. What was the price? We're back to Revelation 5 now. We're back to hearing that heavenly choir in full voice. And here's what they are singing. You, that's the lamb. You're worthy. You're worthy to take the scroll. You're worthy to break its seals because you were slain. And what did you do? You purchased for God with your blood men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's who you are. You're people that have been bought with a price. Price that no one else could pay, but because Jesus paid it, because Jesus died on that cross and purchased for God, us, with his blood, we are now the redeemed people of our God. That's our identity. That's who we are. That's where we belong. That's why we bear this mark. And so church, this is who you are. We have been redeemed. And so dragon and beasts, knock yourselves out. But we know who we are, we know whose we are, and we know where we stand. And this morning, these are visual reminders that we have been purchased, that we have been redeemed. So redeemed. Secondly, we're an offering. We're an offering to God. Look at the end of verse four. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. This is who you are. As first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now I realize first fruits can and does have different meanings in Scripture, but in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to give the first and the best portions 
of their harvest as an offering to him. And by doing that, they acknowledge that all of the harvest, in fact, everything they had ultimately came from God and belonged to God. And this is one of the ways of understanding what John is saying here. What he's saying, that the redeemed people of God are those who know that their lives can be seen as a sacrifice to God. Who we are and what we have ultimately comes from God, and so we give it back. We offer it back to the one to whom it belongs. It's a bit like what Paul talked about in, in, to Romans where he said, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Give it back. Give your life as an offering to God. You've been purchased by Jesus, purchased for God by his blood. Now you just surrender your life back to him. Sometimes we sing that song here in church, I will offer up my life in spirit and in truth. And then it includes the lyric, in surrender I must give my every part. Have we given our every part back to Jesus? So the first characteristic that John sees of the people as God is that they're redeemed. The second is they're surrendered. They have given, they have offered their lives. They are offering their lives all the time back to God. And thirdly, they're faithful. They are faithful lovers of Jesus. That's, that's one way of reading the start of verse four. Now, this is tricky. I will accept this is really tricky. Here's what it says. It is these who have, not been, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Like, what? Throughout the Old Testament, God calls Israel, God calls the people of God, what? His betrothed lover. That's how we're referred to. And he warns the people of God about defiling that intimacy that he has with them by lusting after other gods, by chasing after other lovers. And so, for example, whenever the people of God get caught up in idolatry, what were they accused of? They were accused of committing adultery. And the language here in Revelation 14 indicates that the people of God are those who have not defile themselves. It is those who keep themselves pure. It is those who keep themselves for one lover. It is those who have kept themselves for Jesus. Now, let me read something else from Scripture to shed some further light on this, because I, I, I do appreciate this is at times hard to really get. But Paul writing to the church in Corinth said this, I think I've got on, yeah. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, get this, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And Paul then goes on to lament the fact that they could be and they might be led astray from pure devotion to Christ. And so here in Revelation 14, John characterizes the people of God as those who are faithful lovers of Jesus. Is that us this morning? Are we faithful lovers of Jesus or are we going after other loves? By the way, it doesn't mean we never mess up. But as Jesus asked Peter, not once but three times whenever he messed up big stay, what was the question that Jesus asked Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The critical issue is true disciples of Jesus Christ are able to say this morning, 
We love Jesus. Redeemed, surrendered, faithful, and then followers. Look at the next sentence in verse four. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. You know the constant call of Jesus whenever he was here on earth? Follow me. Follow me. That classic call to discipleship, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Christians should be characterized by a willingness and a commitment to follow Jesus without restrictions, without limits, without conditions. Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, whatever that means. The next characteristic, they're Christ-like. Look at the end of verse 5. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. That effectively means Christians, true disciples of Jesus Christ, are those who speak truth, are those who live out the truth, and they are those who are holy. They are the people of integrity. In other words, they are Christ-like. Is that you this morning? Is that you? It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it does mean that these qualities are priorities. Those who claim to live in God must walk as Christ walked. John sees the people of God living like this. And then the final characteristic for now, they're singers. Back to verse three, they were singing a new song. What is this new song? If you've got scripture in front of you, flick over to chapter 15. Verse three, it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. They sing the song of the lamb. What is the song of Moses? Well, one of his songs is a deliverance song, which he belted out after he crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 15. And what is the song of the Lamb? Well, the lyrics of the song of the Lamb are in chapter 15, and we'll get to that eventually. The point is this, the people of God are those who sing a new song. The people of God are those who are known for the songs that they sing. And so let me bring this all together, or attempt to. So John has seen two beasts who on behalf of the dragon are waging war against the people of God, and that's scary. But immediately after he sees the reality of that fight, John then sees Jesus. He sees the lamb who is standing victorious, who has got the people of God with him and alongside him. And who are those people? Those people are redeemed, surrendered, faithful followers, Christ-like singers. That's their identity. That's our identity. And therefore, we should not be intimidated in this war zone because that's where we belong. Before we move on to the next thing John saw, uh, still okay? I need to be clear about something. It's kind of implied if it's not obvious. There are only two options in life. There are only two sides. Either, and this might seem a bit crass to put it like this, but either you are on team lamb or you're on team beast. And you are marked in either way. There's only two sides. And for those who are on team lamb, 
you are those six things, which John saw. And so as the battle continues to get you to swap sides, because that unholy trinity are waging war against the people of God. But as that battle continues to get you to swap sides, may you never forget that you're redeemed, surrendered, faithful, followers, Christ-like singers. So then we come to scene two. Now please do not worry, I'm not going to spend anywhere near the same amount of time on scene two and three. But in scene two, Jesus or John sees three angels. Now aspects of this are amazing and life-giving. Aspects of this are deeply, deeply disturbing and life-crushing. And so in verse six, look at it with me. The first angel proclaims the eternal gospel to every nation, tribe, and language. What is the eternal gospel? It's the good news. It's the everlasting good news of Jesus. And according to what John sees, it's being shared all around the world. Now, another word for angels is messengers, and that's what they are. But this is also an image of the messenger work of the church in the whole world in these last days. This is what we are meant to be about. And so as the dragon and the two beasts spout all their nonsense and seek to steal and kill and destroy, the eternal gospel is still being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And all of us are involved in that until he comes. Because there are more to join Team Lamb. There are more to make up the 144,000. There are more who need to know that the Lamb was slain for them. By his blood, there are more who need to know they've been purchased by God. And so the need to and the importance of sharing and proclaiming the good news must never be forgotten, never be avoided, because people today, to coin that angel's phrase, still need to fear God and give him glory. That's what John sees as this first angel proclaims the eternal gospel to every tribe. That's for us to do now. Then he sees a second angel. Second angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, literal Babylon had fallen a long time before John saw this vision and wrote it down. So Babylon clearly refers to somewhere else. And by the first century, it had become a kind of code word for any nation or city or humanity in general, actually, that was living in rebellion against God. And so for the first readers of this letter, who were Babylon? For the first readers of this letter, it was Rome. But the thing is, surely Rome hadn't fallen in AD 96 when this letter was written. Which is true. But the point is, it was going to fall. And the point is, it did fall. You see, any nation or kingdom or empire that rejects God or excludes God from its center can't and will not survive. That's been true for all time. There is only one kingdom that will never be destroyed. And therefore, there is a sense in which the second angel's message is part of the good news. It's part of the gospel. Because for the first readers of this letter, it must have felt like Rome was an eternal city. It wasn't. It wasn't an eternal power that was going to have them under its control. Fallen, fallen. Babylon the Great. And then John sees a third angel. And that's message is solemn and it's stark. And I 
take no pleasure. I take no pleasure whatsoever in echoing this angel's message. But I've got to. Because it is all part of the overall message and warning of the eternal gospel. This angel reveals those who worship the beast, who remain in tame beast, who bear the mark of the beast. It reveals those who never turn to God, who never accept that the lamb was slain for them, who never follow Jesus. And the Islam angel reveals that they will face horrific consequences of that choice and that decision. They will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. I take no pleasure. And God's wrath is something we shy away from, and I get that, but we cannot, we must not. It's real. You rip this out of God's character, and you're no longer left with God. You're left with something of our own construct. God is not indifferent towards evil and sin and wickedness. He judges it, and he must. And if we're honest, if we're honest, we're glad he does because if evil and sin and wickedness, sin and wickedness, continue to get away with it forever, that's going to gall us. Although the implications for those who never turn to God are serious. Life, live life without God and you will face eternity without God. And the language that's used here to describe what that means, as I say, is disturbing. God's wrath is a reality. And as J.I. Packer explains, God's wrath in the Bible is something which men and women choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which man himself opts. You want to live life without God? You want to remain in darkness rather than light because people love darkness rather than light? You want to do your own thing? You want to go your own way? You want to worship those who you want to worship? You want to follow whatever gods you want to follow? That's your choice. Of course it is. That's your decision. But part of that choice is you choose wrath. That isn't a hidden reality. The angel issues the warning and the messengers of God have been telling that. They should be telling that. They have been telling that for centuries. Not always very well. Not always very helpfully. But still. I appreciate that raises all kinds of questions and issues for so many of us. But John sees an angel, he hears its message, he writes it down, and we can't say we never knew. Okay, let's finish with the bloodbath. Third thing John sees in chapter 14 is two harvests. And a question that immediately springs to mind is when do these harvests occur? And I know this is a question lots of people ask. When do these harvests occur? Is this talking about, is this referring to the very end of the very end? 
or not? Well, both harvests occur because it says in verses 15 and 18, because the harvest is ripe. And so given what Jesus said in John 4 after his encounter with the woman at well about the fields are being white, are all white on the harvest from then, it would seem that you could argue it's a way of referring that this is happening right now, that the reaping is occurring in present tense. And so the first harvest is carried out according to what John sees by one like a son of man. We all know from Daniel, we all know from our studies in Revelation that one like a son of man is Jesus. And so this is a picture of Jesus gathering to himself his own, which he's been doing for years, which he's still doing today. Many of us here have been gathered in in that harvest. Many of us here have still to be gathered in in that harvest. But that's what Jesus is doing right now, still doing by the grace of God. The second harvest is done by an angel with a sickle, which is really strange given that it's a grape harvest. That's not generally how the way or the way grapes are harvested. Now, I know for some people, again, this is a reference to a harvest of judgment, whereas for others, harvest is most often used in Scripture as an act of salvation. That's not to deny judgment isn't real or coming, as we've already seen via the third angel. It certainly is. Plus, we're going to discover it certainly is as we read on in Revelation. But here in chapter 14, at the end, the second harvest, the gathering of the grapes to be trod in the winepress, I want to suggest, is an act of salvation. And let me quickly explain why, and I realize I'm not going to do justice to this. But a key phrase or term in that description is this, outside the city. Sorry, let me go to the next slide. Outside the city. That's where this is happening. And for John's readers, this would have immediately been a reference to where Jesus was crucified, Matthew 21, 39. And Hebrews picks up on this as well. And therefore, the wine press outside the city is the cross. That is where wrath, that is where wrath and justice meet sin full on. And therefore, the bloodbath described here, which is four feet deep and 180 miles wide, it's not a statistic as we've been saying time and time again. It's a symbol. It's a symbol that says, do you know something? There is blood enough to cover the sins of all who follow the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain. And so as the angel swings his sickle, he gathers in those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus that flowed at the cross of Calvary for us. And there's blood enough. There's blood enough for you. There's blood enough for me. There's blood enough for all those who he purchased for God by his blood. And it's graphic, I know, but it's more good news. It's eternal gospel. I'm going to ask the guys to come back because we're going to sing a song that's about 150 years old. I think that's older than all of us that are here. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's blood enough. There's blood enough for our sins. I realize this morning and I confess that I have attempted to cover way too much. But I only can hope and pray that there's something for you to take away from each of those three scenes. And if you take away nothing else, please will you remember that you are redeemed, surrendered, faithful followers, Christ-like singers. That is Team Lamb.